is about a year ago, my family was here uh, candidating. So you can imagine this, this uh, year has gone crazy wild for us. I can't believe it's already Christmas time. We set up our, our tree. We went and found a, a tree place uh, a couple days ago, trudged through the mud, got a tree, uh, brought it home. For whatever reason, a family tradition of ours is on the, the time when we set up and decorate the tree, we have chocolate shakes and chili. Now, I, I don't know where that tradition came from. I think it's in the Bible somewhere, but we certainly do that every, every year. Uh, it's been it has been a wild ride uh, so far. And you start a- stop and ask yourself, am I ready for Christmas? Are you ready for Christmas? <laughs> all right. I think the long voice that speaks for all of us. Uh, are, are you ready for Christmas? Now, especially there's a lot to get ready for, even when you think about how often you see family during Christmas season. We have become quite the um, family. It's become quite the family oriented uh season in, in our culture anyway. So I want you, what I want you to do is take just a moment, turn to the person next, next to you or around you, behind you, find someone you don't know, uh, share with them just who you might be seeing this year that you, wouldn't, you haven't seen in a long time. Either you're going to their place or they're coming to your place. Whether you like them or not, you don't have to get into that. Just let them know who you're going to be seeing. Go ahead. Take just a minute or two with each other. Now, often when our families get together, it sure, it sure seems this way that that uh, extended families anyway, there are some very colorful personages in our extended families, you know, whether it's lifestyle choices or vocabulary or actions or values, whatever else. Uh, I mean, really, these are kind of we would. When they're not listening, we might say these like the black sheep of the families, the folk that drag the name through the mud. These are our folk that, that you have to warn your children about before you go see them. You know, you're driving and all right, you guys, first of all, no one touches Aunt Margaret's eggnog this year. OK, and, you know, Aunt Margaret loves the eggnog and she drinks too much of it sometimes. And then she acts silly and just stay away from Aunt Margaret. We'll be fine. You know, or on the way home, you have to debrief Uncle Harry's language. OK, here's what this word doesn't mean. We're not going to talk about it. no one say this. Uh, those guys, we know where these, these family get togethers where sometimes the most joyous part of the whole season is leaving them. You know, it's just, that's the most pleasant part saying goodbye. Yes, we're done for another year. Uh, you know, genealogical studies will allow you actually to go further back other than just the extended family right now. You can go further back and find people in, in your lineage, some who are good or, or not so good. Um, you know, this whole genealogy studies thing is really a huge business in America. You know, you can get advanced degrees in genealogical studies. It's more than just a hobby. I don't know how many, any hobby genealogist here. Uh, my got an uncle who goes to Scotland. He's been multiple times trying to trace our genealogy. My mom's side, he must not have found anybody really famous. I haven't heard anything. But if you met folk who, who have somebody famous in their background, or can you imagine you're doing a genealogical study and Abraham Lincoln was one of your great grandfathers or the signer of the Declaration of Independence or, or somebody uh, Einstein. Boy, that would be great to have his DNA going through you, wouldn't you? Or, or, or maybe some great Hudson Taylor, some missionary person. 
somebody who's done incredibly great things. We, we take pride in being associated with, with people who have helped mankind. They've, they've great uh, stories of the faith and of courage. That, that is, that is a, a pride issue for us in a good way, perhaps. And what it also does is it allows us to think that maybe, hey, if Einstein's DNA is in me, that's why I am the way, you know, it allows us to, to think uh, highly about ourselves, bring a little significance into our lives. But if you do the genealogical studies far enough, you've got to be, be warned that you might find someone on the other side, right? You might find out that Jack the Ripper is part of your lineage. What do you do with that one? Huh? You don't tell a lot of people about that. Or... Uh, John Wilkes Booth or Benedict Arnold or Bonnie and Clyde, you know, and you're just like ah. uh, people who have actually hurt lots of people, folk who have who are uh, would bring shame to your name. Those are people you just don't want to mention. You don't you don't want to, to know about uh, if you do know about them, you kind of hide them under the under the rug a little bit. Well, the Jewish people were very, very interested in genealogical studies. I mean, if it doesn't take you long to read through the Bible before you come across the genealogies. And when you do, you probably do the same thing that I do. You either pull up your notes from Evelyn Wood speed reading, you know, and you just kind of skim through that thing. I mean, a bunch of names. You don't know who they are anyway. You can't pronounce them. Let's get through this. Or you just kind of jump to the end, right? If the whole Bible were a genealogy, read through the Bible in 20 minutes, right? We would not take a year to get through the Bible. We'd be through this thing in no time if it were all a genealogy. Now... For the Jewish folk, though, there's a reason why the genealogies are there. It's not to bore us or it's not to make us feel like we've knocked out five extra chapters this, this, this day as we were reading. The reason for the genealogy is a couple of reasons. One is it's a time bridge. The author is writing about this historical event here. And then he's going to skip multiple generations and talk about one here. And so he gives a lot of begats just to let us know that, that these two weren't together, that he's conscious of the fact that there's a lot of space that happened between the two. He ties historical events together. Another reason for the genealogies, though, is they are an identity barometer. Uh, in our culture, you are significant based on your socioeconomic standing, based on your education, how much of it and where you got it. You, you are important based on the size of your office. And is it a corner office? And what corporation do you work for? And what do you do there again? And do you have a private parking place? And, and now what kind of a car do you drive? And what neighborhood do you live in? Those are the things in our culture that determine whether you're important. But in the, the Jewish culture, that, that, those are secondary. That which determined the only thing that determined whether someone was important was who your daddy is. Really, your, your lineage, the line you're from. If you find a very poor person, but they're from the right line, that person is highly esteemed. On the other hand, you've got someone who's got it all, but they're from a poor line or they're not sure what line they're from. That person's just not as respected as much as the other person. It's a very significant feat, uh, the understanding of, of where, where the Jews are at. This is why when Matthew is going to tell us about Jesus, he starts off with a genealogy. Because the Jewish folk, the people he was writing to, understand some things about the Messiah. I mean, Matthew wants to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah that's been promised in the Old Testament. But see, they know some things about the Messiah. And they're saying, don't start off telling me about his miracles. Or stuff he taught or things he did. 
secondary. I know he's supposed to be from the tribe of of Judah. He needs to be from the line of Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob. He needs to be from Judah. He needs to be from the line of King David. See, if, if he's done all those other things, but he's not from that line, it's irrelevant. Nice things. Maybe we need to talk about it, but he's not the Messiah. So Matthew starts out and says, "Okay, let's go through and let's trace the lineage of Jesus. And so he does. But Matthew's got a second reason for his genealogy. Uh, One that that a lot of folk miss. Matthew bypasses conventional understanding in his genealogy by incorporating women into the genealogy. Now, uh, keep in mind that uh, even in Orthodox Judaism today, women were not included, and they're not included in the genealogies. Your, your line has been brought, back, brought through by the, the man's side. And in ancient Judaism, women were considered really second-class citizens. And so you didn't include the women in the genealogy. Matter of fact, a woman's uh, testimony was not even admissible in court. So if you've got a guy mugging somebody else and he steals the guy's stuff and maybe he kills them. And you've got ten women who are watching it. And all their stories collaborate perfectly. This guy can walk free because their, their testimonies aren't acceptable in court because they're women. What are they? They've got to mix up the whole story. What are they? they? They really, there's a Jewish prayer that says, Lord, thank you that you have not made me a woman. I mean, it was really, really a, a, a bad understanding. Now, if you think about it, what is Matthew doing? He wants to talk to the Jewish people and convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he incorporates women in his genealogy. And he takes it another step because this is not an exhaustive genealogy. He doesn't include everybody's name who he can't include. He only includes the names of five women. At least three of them, maybe four of them are Gentile. All of them have a very shady past, like Jack the Ripper type women. What in the world is Matthew doing? Why would he include? Why doesn't he include Sarah? Sarah, her name means princess. She's Abraham's wife. She's the matriarch. She's the one who who started this whole thing. Couldn't have a Jewish nation without Sarah. And why not Rebecca? No sin, you know. There's not a whole lot of sin attached to Rebecca's name in Scripture. Rebecca is the epitome in Scripture of godliness and a gentle and quiet spirit. How come Rebecca's name's not mentioned? He doesn't put her name in there. He throws in some names of folk who the Jews, as soon as they heard their name, they'd go, don't don't mention that one. Oh, yeah, I forgot about her. Don't don't say her. So we want to to, to look this this next. This is a series at, at these gals that Matthew has incorporated in. And we want to ask ourselves, why did he put these here? And I believe that we understand more of the reason for Christmas we can understand why I did that. Now, don't turn in your Bibles right now. We want a second. But first, we want to look at Matthew chapter 1. It says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, this is our first gal, Tamar. And this morning, we are going to look at perhaps... I dare say a story you didn't, you've never heard in Sunday school when you were a kid growing up. I would guess that you've probably never heard a message preached on this. It is perhaps the most X-rated story in the Bible. Uh, we're going to be tasteful about it, though. Uh, and if that doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. But turn to Genesis chapter 38. 
as we try to understand Tamar, especially why did Matthew incorporate her name and the, the lineage? Genesis chapter 38, Tamar. Verse 1, it says, At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Harah. Uh, there Judah met a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. Now, a couple things. First of all, you know some stuff about Judah. Remember the, the, what happened here, right? This is not very far. We're early Genesis. God had come to Abraham and said, Abraham made a lot of promises. Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Then God came to his boy Isaac and said, Isaac, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Then he came to his boy Jacob and said, Jacob, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then Jacob had some sons who were supposed to continue on with the promise. And Judah was one of those boys. Now, I made a huge mistake first hour. I said he was the firstborn. Judah was not. He's the fourthborn. Um, we'll just, we won't mention anything to them. Um, but you need to know some stuff about Judah. He was very influential with his brothers. Very, influ- very, very influential. Let's, let's just, if you've got your Bibles open, I don't have this one on the screen, but in chapter 37. Judah had a kid brother named Joseph. Remember this story? And Joseph was loved by dad more than the rest of the brothers. Made them all very upset. Not only that, but Joseph had those goofy dreams. Remember his goofy dreams? We'd come to his brothers and say, in my dreams one day, you're going to bow down to me. Well, you can imagine that went over very well with these guys. And so they, they didn't like him at all. So one day the brothers are out with their sheep far away from home and Joseph comes walking across the field looking for him and check up on him and they see him coming and so they start talking among themselves. Let's kill him, they say. So they grab him and they throw him in a pit and while they're trying to figure out how they're going to kill him, they notice a, a, a caravan of Ishmaelite traders. And Judah has got a great idea. In verse 26 of chapter 37, Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. I mean, he is our brother. We shouldn't kill him. Let's sell him. Yeah, that's a good plan. Let's sell him. Notice his reason for selling him was not because he really wanted to protect him, because we don't gain anything by that. Yeah, we can kill him, but we're not going to get. How can we get the most out of this deal? We can sell them. Yeah, that can give us the most. He wasn't concerned about his brother. He wasn't concerned about his father back home. He was concerned about himself. And then look at what it says. It says in verse chapter 38, verse 1, it says that he left his brothers and went to stay with a man of Adullam named Terah. There Judah met a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He moved away from the covenant family. He left the promises of God for the Canaanites. Judah didn't have a whole lot of concern about the promises of God. He really didn't care. These great promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he had no no use for those. He wanted to get away from God. So he left. And when he was hanging out with the Canaanites, he married a Canaanite gal. 
And there were, keep in mind, there's not a lot of atheists at this point in history. She no doubt worshipped. But she probably worshipped her pagan deities, had never heard of, of Yahweh before. It says that he married her and lay with her and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. So that she conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezeb that she gave birth to him. So three boys, right? My three sons. You've got, you got Ur and Onan and Shelah. If you're looking for a name for a baby, good names. Ur, Onan, Shelah. That's, those, that's her kids. kids. They're all half Canaanite at least. Verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. This would have been his task, the father, to do that. He got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. That's where Tamar is. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Now, don't know a lot really about Tamar. She was Canaanite, 14, 15 years old. Um... We do know a little bit, though, about her husband, Ur. It says he was wicked. He was, the word is violently wicked. I would think that he's generally speaking a violently wicked man. But here, context, he's violently wicked in relationship to his wife, his marriage. What did he do to Tamar? How did he treat his, his wife? Well, we know if he's like his daddy, we know how he treats other people. Who are supposed to be close to him. He's, who he's supposed to love and take care of. We know how he treats them. Is he doing the same thing? Matter of fact, he is so evil that God's going to put him to death. Now, you've got to be pretty evil. God tolerates a lot of stuff for God to put him to death. So he did. Verse 8, it says, Then Judah said to Onan, which is a second boy, right? Lie with your brother's wife. And fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. Now, you read that and you go, well, that's a seedy part of Scripture, isn't it? Now, what is that about? Like Peyton Place or something. What's going on here? Well, actually, this was a custom, but this would become part of, of, of the, the law. And this, this is the, the reasoning why. Because, again, when the gal left her father's home and those who know her best and her siblings, she, she moved in over here with a whole new family. Then to be a widow and kicked out of the house. This is not a free market society. I'm not going to go down and get a job with full benefits. Well, it's not going to happen. There's no social security or government to take care of you. And so you are incredibly vulnerable in an incredibly vulnerable state. And if, in fact, you, you weren't killed, many, many horrific things, would, you would just open yourself up. You'd be open to many, many very bad, wicked things to happen. And so the idea was, is that the father-in-law would take the daughter and daughter-in-law and he would keep her in his house, take care of her, provide for protect her, And then he would give her to the next oldest boy, whether the next oldest boy had a, a wife or not. And then the, the, the boy's job was this. His job was to produce offspring in his brother's wife that didn't have his last name, but his brother's deceased brother's last name so that when the inheritance came to be divided up she the children would in fact get part of the inheritance but now so that's that's onan's job that's what he's supposed to be about but let's see what onan does verse nine but onan knew that the offspring would not be his so whenever he lay with his brother's wife he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother 
what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. Well, uh, Onan, a couple things about Onan. First of all, Onan was a, a mathematician. Onan knew before when dad died, there's three boys, Ur and himself and Selah, and they would have to be divide up the inheritance. It's going to go three, three ways, kind of. Okay, but now that Ur died, see, with no children, when dad dies, they're going to divide up the inheritance. It goes two ways, and especially more for him now because see, he's going to be the oldest at this point. So oh, this is looking pretty good. But if he kind of resurrects his brother, as it were, through offspring with his brother's last name, he's not the oldest anymore. And we go back to the thirds thing. So Onan was a, a mathematician. Onan was also a barbarian. He was because his only job, his only time he was supposed to be with his brother's wife, the only purpose, the only reason was progeny. It was not pleasure. It was just to produce a child. But look what it says. Whenever he lay with his brother's wife, sure seemed it was multiple times not to fulfill what he was supposed to be doing. Come to find out that Scripture says here that he was wicked in the Lord's sight. That's that violently wicked word again. So he was... What with, with Tamar, this 15-year-old kid? Uh, you know what's, what's worse about this thing than anything else? Is again, she worshipped her Canaanite gods. The only understanding she had of Yahweh was through these guys. These guys were the covenant family. The only story she'd ever heard about Yahweh and God, if she would have heard any, would have come through them. This was her understanding of God's people, what they were doing to her. And so she was uh, widowed a second time when it says God put to death her second husband. Verse 11 it says, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. Remember, he's supposed to give her seat Sheila. For he thought he may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Well, a couple things. First of all, Tamar, just like previous, is supposed to stay in, in Judah's household. He's the one responsible for her. But what's he do with her? Sends her away. Go, go back home. Go to your, your father's house. Let him take care of you. He's washing his hands of his responsibility. But he promises her, Sheila. Now, don't think she's got to wait 18 years for this guy. He's probably only three years or so away from marrying age. It's not that big of a deal. But so she goes away and she's there. Now, what's going to happen is, uh, let me paraphrase. She goes away. Let me just give you the first line. I don't have it on the screen of verse 12. It says, after a long time, years go by. And you know what's going through his heart. He had no intention of giving Sheila to Tamar because he's thinking, what's he think? He's thinking, Tamar's cursed. My boys have died. And it's not their fault because they were wicked. No, nothing like that. It's, it's, they were married to her. The common denominator is Tamar. She's the reason my boys have died. And so she's, she's, she's bewitched of somehow. They're going to send her away. Get rid of her. He has no intention of sending. So he doesn't. 
So a long time passes, years pass, and his own wife dies. And, 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 and he goes on with life, not, not sending a message, according to our text anyway, not, not talking to her, not checking up, seeing how she's doing. And can you imagine Tamar? She's back home, dad's house, waiting, getting a call any day. You know, it's been a year and a half now. I think Sheila's just about ready. Well, it's been two years now. It's been five years now. How come I'm not getting a call? Where's Sheila? It's been ten years. She dawns on her. That Judah has lied to her. He has no intention of giving her Sheila. Therefore, she's going to die without a child. The utmost humility in this culture. Now, this is uh, interesting. I mean, what happens is, is uh, Judah's business is going to take him into Tamar's hometown where her dad is, where she's living. He's going to do some business there. And so word comes out to Tamar, you know what? Hey, your, your father-in-law is coming to town. And so Tamar comes up with a really goofy plan. Now, I've got to cut her a little slack. She's Canaanite. Her only experience with Yahweh people has been very, very bad. And so what she does is she dresses up like a prostitute to meet uh, Judah on the road. Now, what's she thinking here? I, it's, scripture doesn't tell us. Is she going to like... Pull off her veil and say, aha, I'm Tamar. You ripped me off. What's she going to do? Is, and maybe this is reading too much into it. Is she, did she hear some stories when she was living with these guys that, that uh, through their line, all the, the world will be blessed? And we know this side of the story that Jesus was going to come through this line. And yet Judas' line was getting ready to die out. And so she, she took matters into her own. Was she thinking that? I don't know. That's probably reading too much into it. I, I, I don't know. But either way, she knew that, that Judah was responsible for her. So she dresses up like a prostitute. She starts, uh, sees him coming down the road. She jumps out from behind the tree and starts trying to, to sell her wares to him. And Judah sees. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. Again, maybe he didn't recognize because it was years, it was sheep shearing time, so he might have been a bit inebriated. So kind of a party season. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. Well, I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? I mean, what if you rip me off? What if you don't really send it? And he said, well, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took up the veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Now, the uh, seal was, was, was a little cylinder thing that you usually wore around your neck. This is pretty important. This was like your driver's license and social security card and credit card, kind of all wrapped passport, all wrapped up into one. And when you were sealing a business deal, literally, you would put wax or clay and you take this thing off and you would roll the insignia on it. It was kind of like your personal signature. And you would put it back on. This was, this was your signature. And so she took that. She took the, the staff. Uh, he goes back and he gets a goat and he sends his goat by his, by his servant and says, okay, go bring that, that, that shrine prostitute a goat and get my stuff back. And the guy brings the goat, but she's gone. She's not there. And so he starts asking around, hey, where was the shrine prostitute? And people, why do you want to know? Oh, I don't know. I'm just wondering. You know, I just, you know, well, there's no shrine prostitute here. So, so he goes away saying, you know what? I'm not even going to push this one. The folk are saying she's not here. 
And Judah says, all right, just let her keep this stuff. I'll get a new steel. We'll be all right. Um, well, in time, as you can imagine, word gets out that Tamar is expecting. Widow Tamar, no husband, is expecting. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Uh, According to Tim Keller, this burning to death was the most excruciating, most painful uh, punishment there there was. Uh, Judah here is, is not, it's important to realize what's going through his head and what's not. He's not thinking uh, guilt. Oh, yeah, I guess I've committed immorality once or twice myself. He's not thinking, I dropped the ball. I was supposed to be taking care of her. I promised her Sheila. I pushed her into this desperate situation. He's not thinking that. He's not thinking pity. What's he thinking? Revenge. I'm going to torture this girl. Maybe he's still going through his head that she's the cause. She's the one to blame. For his personal hurt, his pain, his boys are gone and it's her fault. So he's going to make her pay. Let's take her out and burn her to death. That's the plan. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, actually dragged out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Now, actually, this is a play on the previous chapter. Remember, they, they take Joseph, previous chapter is Joseph. They take his coat of many colors and they kill the animal and they put the blood on it and they bring it back home to dad and, and they, they show it to dad and all they, one, one Hebrew word, they say, recognize, recognize. And that was for deception. Here, Tamar's doing the exact same thing, but basically to clear up the deception in Judah. Brings the steel, the, the staff, the cord, and says one, one Hebrew word. Recognize? Do, do, do you recognize these? And, and look at the, what it does to Judah. Verse 26. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot to be more righteous than him, right? But she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. I think what's going on here is the same thing that happened with uh, David and Bathsheba. Remember the story? And uh, David's got his whole harem, but he takes Uriah's wife, kills Uriah, takes, takes his, his wife and covers it all up and thinks he's gotten away with it. He's, he's, David just keeps rolling, man. He's, he's fine. He's, life is fine. I got away with this one. Life is good. And then Nathan comes to him. Remember this? Nathan says, hey, David, leave it. I got this dilemma and I kind of need some counsel. And David's saying, OK, great. Hey, man, throw it. Lay it on me because, see, I'm into counsel. I can handle it. And what's the dilemma? And he says, well, OK, well, here's the, the dilemma. There was a rich man who had tons of sheep. I mean, he had hundreds of thousands. He just had, he didn't have names. He just, just were just a bunch of sheep, tons of them. Uh, but he had a neighbor, a real poor guy. And they only had one little lamb and they named it Fido and they put ribbons in its hair and it did dumb sheep tricks for him and hung out with their kids and they played with had tea parties. But it was just it was a part of his daughter. Well, the rich man, one day he had a guest come, another rich man, but a guest come and he was hungry. And so the rich man walked out and he looked at his his flocks, hundreds of thousands of sheep. And then he looked across the fence and the poor family was they were gone. But little Fido was out in the field. 
So the rich man sent his servant over and they snagged Fido and butchered him. So his rich friend could have some meal. What, do you, what should we do with this rich guy, David? Well, David was incensed, right? Ah, kill him. You're going to get rid of him. And he goes on and on. And when David finally comes down, Nathan says, you're the man. And suddenly David realizes, ah, I am the man. I think right here, exact same thing. Judah is upset. He's got that spiritual superiority thing going. Burn Tamar. I'm so righteous and she's so she's the cause of the pain. And let's get rid of her. And then when when that's put before her, before him, he says, I am the man. She's more righteous than I am. An incredible admission. Verse 27, it says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. She was, as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Perez would go on to become the leading clan in Judah. Perez would go on to become the line through which King David would come. Perez would go on to become the line through which, of course, Jesus, the Messiah, would come. God, it's important for us to keep in mind, God was not excusing the whole sin issue here. But he was using the sin issue here. Now, as we think, go back to earlier, why would Matthew... Put Tamar's story in the line. And again, when they saw Tamar, they all knew this story. They, really, they didn't have to. It was all old news for them. And as soon as they saw her name, they cringed a little bit. Because one of the reasons Matthew was saying Tamar's in here because of the spiritually proud. Because the Jews took great, great pride in their heritage. They, remember, they felt very bad about the Canaanites. I didn't tell you about that prayer earlier. Thank you, God, for not making me a woman. Actually, it says, thank you, Lord, for not making me a Gentile or a woman. Because they had nothing good to say about any Gentile. And yet, what, what Matthew is saying here, and this is real important. He's saying, let me, let me get this straight, you, you uh, spiritually pride, prideful uh, Judaites, all these guys, by the way, that Matthew's talking to are just about all from the tribe of Judah. He says, make sure I understand this. There was a Canaanite girl one time who dressed up like a prostitute and had an incestuous relationship with her very ungodly, though he was supposed to be from the covenant, a sensual, self-oriented uh, father-in-law. And they had a baby. And the baby's name was you, yeah, that's right. This is it's you. Right? What he's saying is, you guys are so cocky about your pride and all about things you've done and who you are and what you're about. You just got to keep in mind, you have got little Tamar in your bloodline. Uh, you know, you know, this is this is this is occupational hazard for those of us who've been walking with the Lord for a while. It's so easy. It's so easy to have that spiritual uh, superiority thing going. You know, isn't it? You know, I, we always start off this way. I'm not perfect. I realize that. And somehow we start. It'd be great if we just stopped there, but we never stop there. However, but I would never have done that. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I would not do that kind of thing. 
I wouldn't say those things. I would never incorporate that. I wouldn't program that way. And what are we saying? I am just a little bit spiritually superior to the others. See, I've got the gift of discernment. I understand the score. I would do it right. I've just got the spiritual superiority. And what Matthew is saying is if that's where you're at, if you've got the if you're in the spiritual superiority category, you are not ready for the Messiah to be born because you're focusing on all of your righteousness. And you're going to miss why, why Jesus came. Because he didn't come for the righteous. He's also, I think, given us Tamar for the spiritually, not just the spiritually superior, but for the spiritually scarred. For this gal who was uh, kind of opposite of Judah. She was abused. She was hurt. She was ridiculed. She was certainly the victim of a very unjust society and, and culture and system and, uh, of God's people at the same time. Uh, Tamar might have been just straight up guilty of what desperation caused her to do at one point or maybe a loose time for whatever reason. I'm wondering if there's just not some Tamars in here who when we stop and we think back to the time in our life, some stuff that we've done, where we've come from, what we're about. We're, first thing we would say is if you've only if you would only know if you only knew. My life, my past, what I've done, what, what, what I'm about. And, and, and here's, here's the problem with, with the Tamars. And, and again, just letting us know that, that, that all of us have Tamar in our, our system. But here's the problem with the Tamars. Sometimes Tamars can focus purely on their hurt and on their pain and on their uh, being the victims and on their anger. Whatever else, they just focus on that to the point where they're going to they're gonna miss the Messiah. And so if you're a Tamar and you're focusing on that, you will miss the whole purpose of Christmas. Why? Jesus came. Jesus came for Tamar. Christmas is not, right? About the lights and the tree and St. Nick and the presents and the sails and all. That's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about Tamar. It's because people are broken, right? And, and need him. And are in desperate straits without him. And Matthew would, would stop to remind us as we begin to celebrate the season. But just keep in mind that, that Jesus' birth is not about necessarily festivities and things and parties. It's about people. It's because there was a, a major need of which everybody has for this Messiah. I can imagine Jesus looks back at his family tree with with pleasure. Tamar is my great, great, great grandmother. And he loves her. The reason why she's in there is not because she nailed it, because she had all her theology straight, because she did everything perfect, but because he chose her, because he loves her. That's what Christmas is about, right? That's the season or the reason for the season. So let me ask you again, like we asked you at the very beginning. Are you ready for Christmas? Because if you're in that spiritually prideful category, you're not. If you're in the Tamar category, you're just focusing on the pain and hurt, you're not. You have to bring both things and drop them at the foot of the cross and God's glory and grace will blaze and just eclipse those things. Jesus is, is the reason. 